Radio Aspiral is a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media. Presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney, it covers a host of topics from international media, publishing, aviation, and technology. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. Again to Radio Espoil. This is episode 10. Another great guest lined up for you. Let's take it away. subject tonight is going to be um, uh, missing uh, Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. This is a subject of where that we've covered a number of times. We have a great guest lined up for you. I'll tell you about that shortly. You're very welcome. Thank you for joining us for uh, episode 10. Uh, we're talking Malaysia Airlines, missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. 
Uh, I'm going to tell you about our guest very shortly, just a quick brief info about Radio Spoil. We're a global internet broadcast uh, with audio and video. Our focus is on the media, how it deals with uh, related news matters, our core areas, our uh, publishing, writing, aviation, technology, uh, and we consider other things as well. Uh, you can find us on, at, uh, on the internet on www.radioaspoil.com. Uh, you can find this episode and previous episodes that we've done uh, on podcast and videocast through iTunes, uh, Spreaker, uh, SoundCloud, YouTube and, and many other um, uh, channels. Now, um, let's get straight on and straight to our uh, guest uh, this evening and well first of all we'll deal with the uh, the topic just to give you uh, we've discussed this topic uh, quite a number of times on the uh, on previous episodes uh, Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 was a scheduled international passenger flight which disappeared on the 8th of March 2014 while flying from Kuala Lumpur International Airport Malaysia to Beijing Capital International Airport in China the aircraft was a Boeing 777-200ER operated by Malaysia Airlines. It last made uh, air traffic control contact over the South China Sea shortly before entering Vietnam airspace. Uh, and that was about 40 minutes after takeoff. Uh, Malaysia military radar uh, continued to track the aircraft for a period of time after it deviated westwards back over the uh, Malay Malaysia Peninsula. Uh, it left the range of military radar approximately around the time of about 2.22 a.m. Uh, northwest uh, of Penang. Uh, the aircraft was carrying 12 Malaysia crew members and 227 passengers from 15 nations. There was an initial multinational search effort for the aircraft. Um, it remains the largest and most expensive uh, search in aviation history. The search began in the South China Sea and the Gulf of Thailand and on to the southern Indian Ocean. More than four years later its final resting place has never been located. This has prompted many theories about its disappearance from the possible to the plausible to the bizarre and the ridiculous. Now there have been two uh, primary searches for the remains of the, the, the seabed wreckage of uh, Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 over the past four years. Uh, one was conducted by Fuguru uh, Worldwide uh, and the uh, ATS, the Australian Transport uh, Safety Board. And there's been a more recent one which is just concluded and that was conducted um, under contract by a company called Ocean Affinity. Uh, and the Malaysian government. Okay, it's time to move now to uh, my guest uh, tonight to discuss quite a number of, of topics surrounding this whole case. Joanda Ismail is a professional pilot currently flying for an airline in the United States. His flying experience is quite diverse, having flown in many places around the world, including the airspaces of Australia, China, Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand and Singapore in the past. He's currently based in Los Angeles, where he flies to over 100 destinations in the USA, from the west coast of the United States to the east coast and into neighbouring Canada, as well as Mexico. 
having spent 12 years flying professionally over twice as many as a private pilot he has a good understanding of op the operational capabilities of air traffic control procedures and services in the regions he has flown his professional flying experience is diverse with a grand total of over 4,700 hours over 2,400 hours of that as an airline pilot and 1,800 hours as a flight instructor. His background is equally as diverse as his flying experience having been born in Singapore of Malaysia and Singaporean parentage. At the age of five he migrated to Australia where he grew up and lived most of his life until the last 12 years where he has lived and worked as an expat pilot living in China, Indonesia and the United States. He speaks fluent Bahasa Indonesia and Malaysia as well as conversational Thai and Burmese languages. He also holds a science degree in biochemistry and has worked in the educational field as a high school science teacher. But his passion and his interest in aviation has seen him pursue his hobby and made it into a career later in his life. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's now time to go and talk to Juanda. Okay, you're back on uh, Radio Aspoil. Uh, Joanna Ismail uh, joins us. Um, Joanna, you're very welcome. Oh, thank you, Mick. Yeah, I'm very happy to be here talking to you today. Yeah, and I, like I say, with uh, a lot of... Uh well, I guess uh, on the program, where you, wherever you're you're watching or listening to this, usually most of my guests are people that I've I've got to know over a period of time. Uh, I think you and I probably have got to know each other better over the last two or three years. Yeah, I think we've been friends uh, a while on on Facebook. And, yeah, uh, through other media. Yeah. Um. Okay. Obviously, the the, the topic um, today is uh, missing uh, Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. Um, I'm, we've done previous programs uh, on this topic um, I think this is about a third or fourth program on it and it certainly won't be the last it certainly won't be the last now um, so I, I'm not going to go over uh, a, a, you know a long introductory zone uh, people can check out the uh, the previous programs if they want the, the full background to this story what really we're going to talk about today is the more ins and outs and where specifically we are now with this um, this, this uh, uh, horrible tragedy uh, Yuanda, like all our guests, um, I, I like to start with perhaps just uh, uh, our guests giving a, a, a little bit of a, a flavour of you know who you are, what you're about, some of your background, and maybe just starting with your early life. You grew up in was it Singapore? Um, yeah, I was born in Singapore. I lived there for five years before my family migrated to Australia. Uh, so from the age of five, I grew up in Australia, went to school there, uh, went to college, university there. Uh, I learned to fly in Australia after I finished college. Um, so yeah, pretty much um, you can cons consider me as an Australian, I guess, because you know, that's where I've lived most of my life. Uh, except for the last 12 years where I've been pretty much um, being on the go, uh, going to where the jobs are as a professional pilot. Uh, so for the last 12 years, I've been uh, you know, living in places like China and uh, Indonesia. Uh, and in the last uh, year and a half, I've been here in the U.S. Um, so, yeah, I grew up in, in Australia um, and currently, yeah, all over the place, just living out of a suitcase, basically, for the last <laughs> 10 or 12 years. I, I, um, 
I talked uh, a, a, a couple of times. We, we've had uh, James Nixon on, and uh, he, uh, he he was uh, James, of course, is now a retired um, uh, captain. But uh, he, he did say, yeah, sometimes the 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 lifestyle is not quite so glamorous, and it does wear you down because you're sleeping at different uh, various different times depending on what uh, flight you're servicing. Yes, yes, that's right. Right now, I'm I'm in a hotel in St. Louis, and uh, yeah, I have a 24-hour overnight here. And tomorrow night's going to be a different place altogether, and, and that's pretty much the way it's been. That's for, the way it is. <laughs> yes, that's right. So, to just uh, what was it that 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 clicked and got you into aviation? What, what where did the bug, as it were, get grip you? Yeah. Okay. Um, because in my younger years, uh, we did a lot of travel. Um, you know, back in the 70s, we um, lived in Australia and we used to go to Singapore quite a lot for holidays to visit our family back there. And back in those days, you know, you could go up and visit the cockpit. You know, this is well before 9-11, of course. And, and, cockpit's and I made, yeah, I made many, many cockpit visits on my flights back home to Singapore. And every time I, I visited the cockpit, I talked to the pilots and I looked at uh, all the instruments and the dials in the cockpit, and that really uh, inspired me. That was to become it. A pilot. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. So ever since I was uh, what about five, six years old, you know, I've been uh, you know, wanting to become a pilot. And it wasn't un until after I finished my university degree that I uh, picked up a, a private pilot's license, and I did that for quite a lot. Uh, I did that for about. Well, probably about 10 to 15 years uh, and worked as a school teacher in the meantime to, to finance that uh, because it's not cheap. Nope. Um, and then after uh, after that, I decided, okay, I'm going to um, do what I've really wanted to do in my life, and that is to become a, an airline pilot. So I pursued that career uh, later in life. So, you know, I uh, started off as being a, a school teacher and then a change in career, and uh, now I'm doing what I really love to do, and that's to fly. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Um, we're going to uh, shortly talk uh, a little bit about uh, the the second search, the um, search uh, carried out by Ocean Infinity. But just before that, I suppose the logical question I want to ask you is uh, that that I suppose this whole tragic case has been going now for four years. But let's just briefly, without getting into too much detail, whereabouts were you? And, and can you specifically remember when you, you you heard about this? I would imagine probably from the news wires you first heard of this. We're, we're going back obviously to the morning of March the 8th, uh, 2014. So just, just where, where, how did it unfold from your perspective? Okay, yeah, I remember that day very well, Mick. Um, I was in Indonesia. I was flying for one of the uh, local airlines there, the government domestic airline at the time. And uh, I was asleep and I got a message from a friend of mine saying that in a Malaysian Airlines has gone missing. And immediately I went onto the internet and, and as most pilots do, you know, we log on to the internet and uh, we have a look at uh, that website, P. Prune, because mm -hmm. pretty much uh, there's lots of rumours that goes posted on, on, on that website, P. Prune. So I was trying to find out if anyone had any other information about the, the plane and uh, what was happening. And of course, you know, back in those early days, there was lots of rumours about what was happening. Uh, there were some um, posts that mentioned that the, the plane actually landed in China, of all places. Mm -hmm. um, I remember that. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, they've just done a diversion and you know, 
uh, might have meant that there, there might have been some problem on board. No, I, th- I think that was that was all our initial thoughts. That look, it's 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 fine. It's just some form of serious communication problem they're having, and they'll just divert and, and land. And that's right. The hours mm-hmm. passed by, and it didn't quite turn out that way. That's right. Yeah, and um, then the, you know I, I heard of the, uh, a search that was going on in the in the uh, southern China Sea, mm-hmm. and there were rumours of uh, debris being um, located by aircraft fly, that were flying that route um, and you know, my first thought was oh, okay that might have been an accident and they might have ended up in the southern uh, South China Sea um, but as the the day progressed and as the day um, the, the weeks progressed then that became more of a mystery because they then thought that the plane headed in an entirely different direction um, and it, when they said that the, that the plane might be in, in the southern Indian Ocean, and that uh, w- was really mind-blowing because, you know, that's, that was way, way off course. Um, and then there was rumours about debris being uh, located around there as well in the southern Indian Ocean, and I thought, oh, okay, it won't be long before they start uh, retrieving the black boxes and so forth. But as the days progressed and nothing was found, then that made it really surprising and intriguing for, for me anyway uh, about the whole mystery of um, Malaysian 370. Um, so yeah, that's uh, pretty much how it unfolded to me. I, I know that um, you've put forward, we'll call it a, a supposition as to what might have been happening to the aircraft after its last known communication uh, yeah. at, at Waypoint to Gary. We'll talk about that in just a second, but just before yeah. we do that, and we, we, where we really start to get into the, the nitty gritty, um, just on Ocean Infinity and the second search, and just if, if people are obviously are, are following this and this is the, the first sort of news update they've had in a while um, that that search has now formally concluded um, and the, 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 oh. the vessel has already left the search area in the southern Indian Ocean uh, just your thoughts then on the, on the second the second search uh, yeah I was quite hopeful that uh, they might have uh, picked up something during the second search because the indications were that uh, uh, with the drift modelling uh, and with the uh, other analysis that's been going on. Uh, I think there was a higher uh, expectation. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, that something would be found. So uh, something not found. Well, they haven't found anything. That's a, a bit of a disappointment, of course. Um, but I hope that they will continue um, in the next summer uh, searching along the the seventh arc, or even you know, well, well north of that. Uh, yeah, it's it's just. Uh, um, People are wondering, well, why don't they just go back to port and start again? Just to, to clarify for people, um, Ocean Infinity were uh, contracted by the, well, initially the uh, company Ocean Infinity back in, God, I think it was March of um, last, it was, yeah, March of last year, 2017, actually approached the Malaysian government and said, look, the previous Fugro led search is finished. We we believe we've got better technology and we can search uh, just as large an area quite quickly. Uh, it seemed to take somewhat quite a, a long time for the Malaysian government to you know, put out tenders, look at other companies, but ultimately 
uh, in December uh, they announced that yeah they were going to let this uh, independent company Ocean Infinity uh, go ahead and uh, and search and so that's what's been happening since January uh, of this year and the area the designated areas um, which were all north of the previous uh, larger search zone uh, have essentially been searched now Un unfortunately we we've had no uh, success so that's just sort of the, the, the background but yeah um, obviously we're all disappointed I suppose when we talk about the second search and we're, we're going to lead into now some of the what maybe happened that aircraft early on um, in its flight um, but just on I suppose the, the natural question and maybe reaction that everybody has now beyond just the disappointment of that you know okay it's, it still hasn't been found okay. is have we got something wrong have we assumed something we shouldn't have assumed is the data the Inmarsat data not quite what we thought it was reliable uh, as what what can affect you know just just your thoughts around that because people will immediately and, and understandably say they must have got yeah. something something's wrong here if they've all right. searched all this area and still can't oh. find it is it just because it's not there it's somewhere else yeah well i think the search area was based on a few assumptions um and one of the assumptions were that the the airplane was on automatic pilot and it was flown in i think uh, well they made the assumption that it was flown on uh, one of five different modes of autopilot mm -hmm. Um, from what my understanding was that uh, it could have been uh, uh, in automatic pilot mode, in, in heading uh, mode or uh, in track mode or using the, the flight management computers uh, LNAV mode. Um, and, now, and it's important because people will will say, oh, okay, fine, but then can't they work all that out? But it's important to with with the the, the different modes um, that the aircraft can be set to it's important to say even only a, a slight change can have such a significant impact on the the final area absolutely you know, just, yeah. just, you know small little things that like that uh, we, we have to understand that the southern Indian Ocean is a vast vast uh, ocean and not the most hospitable ocean at the best of times yeah, I, I think uh, the turn back from Igari um, and thereafter to Penang and west of Penang tells us a lot about what may have uh, happened towards the end of the flight, Mick, because... It, do uh, it doesn't quite look like that part of the flight, that there, there's some indications in it it's like when we if, I know people will look at you know things like flight radar and they, they'll, they'll understand that the planes generally they don't fly exactly in straight lines, but predominantly uh, an aircraft in cruise mode, you know, on a map when you're tracking it, it, it looks fairly reasonably straight and steady. There were yeah. some indications on the work that uh, Mike Exner and Victor Anello uh, have done that, that there, there appears to be slight wavering that, that that aircraft may not necessarily have been in autopilot, that it is possible it was being what we call hand flown manually flown uh, yeah I, I i'm ve i'm very confident that that is the case because uh, when it was uh, turning back from igari uh, actually I, I first picked this up when i looked at the factual information report back in 2015 mm -hmm. because if you have a look at the track 
from departure to Igari, I mean, that track is as straight as a die. That's straight what you straight as an arrow, yep. That's right. That's what you expect a track to look like when it's on automatic pilot mode. Uh, that is prob most probably on uh, LNAV, uh, in the F FMM FMC LNAV mode that the, the plane was tracking on to get to Igari. Now, if you have a look at the track coming back from Igari, it's like a, a snake. It's not straight. It's uh, there were. It seems it's like there were undulations in it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and uh, you know, I was a flight instructor, and I, I used to have students in the in the simulator, and I get them to to hand fly. And uh, when I have a look at their track, uh, when they're hand flying the aircraft, and comparing that when the automatic pilot is on then uh, yeah, obviously they're not going to be as uh, as straight as the, the autopilot when the autopilot's engaged, when they're tracking. And, and consequently, that, that's why airlines oh. and pilot, professional pilots themselves, as often as possible, have the aircraft engaged in uh, an autopilot mode, because that is actually the safest and steadiest way and most efficient way to fly. Yes, that's right, absolutely, yeah. Um, and especially flying at high altitude as well, um, where the air is less dense, it's a lot harder to, to keep the, the airplane straight and level uh, in those, at those altitudes. So it would make more sense for a pilot to have the autopilot on um, when they're flying at you know, 35,000 feet or anywhere around that altitude. Uh, so if you have a look at the track coming back from Igari towards Penang, then yeah, that, that track had quite a few different course changes in, in uh, short periods of time. Mm -hmm. And that, that would suggest that the, the, the plane was being hand-flown. Uh, because, you, you know, when you have the autopilot on, of course, you're going to be flying a much, a much straighter track than that. I, I, now, I suppose I, 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 I'm sure people listening to us want me to ask this question. I, I feel it's important to ask. Mm -hmm. Can we maybe examine... Is there any reason why the aircraft would not be in autopilot mode flying, you know, uh, after it's turned from a gallery? Uh, 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 can we quantify any, any reasons of what, what might have been going on? Um, okay. Um, yeah, there could be a number of uh, reasons. And I think the main reason would be that uh, it wasn't possible to, to fly in mm -hmm. auto autopilot mode. And the autopilot will disengage when the, the aircraft is uh, uh, not receiving uh, accurate data from its, uh, its flight computers, for example. Um, and yeah, there there are cases, there are instances when the autopilot will just kick off because uh, the the aircraft is uh, unstable. Um, the the aircraft is not uh, within the the limitations of what the autopilot can do in terms of keeping it straight and level. So the autopilot will kick off and say, "Okay, it's uh, out of my control now. You, you, you got to handle yeah. this." That's right. Yeah, uh, that might be one one possibility, and that that's happened a few times as well. Um, um, secondly, it could be delib deliberately done. Uh, I mean, the autopilot can be de deliberately disengaged because, off, yeah. yeah, because the uh, the pilot wants to take uh, full control of the aircraft. It might have entered in, into a state where it was unstable. Um, so you kick off the autopilot and you hand fly it. Um, and it also could be due to um, the fact that. Uh, the, the aircraft might have, be, have experienced uh, 
a malfunction of some sort. So in those instances, then yeah, you you turn off the autopilot and you fly the aircraft manually. And if you wanted to do, you wanted to turn back as quickly as you could, uh, then that would probably be the, the the quickest way of doing it. Um, you turn off the autopilot, you hand fly it back. And from there, once you've got the, the aircraft stabilized in the direction that you want it to fly to, then you would then try to re-engage the autopilot if you could. Um, you, there you, are some... You posed the, the, the question, uh, going back to y your study of the, this particular part of the, the flight, and, oh. and I suppose posited the question, is it possible that this aircraft was attempting some form of diversion and was essentially lining itself up to uh -huh. attempt at least to land at Penang. Um, yeah, from what I've investigated, Mick, uh, it looks very much like it. It was trying to get back to Penang. Um, if you have a look at the standard arrival into Penang, there's one called the, the BIDMO-1 Alpha arrival procedure. Uh, standard arrival procedures are procedures which pilots follow. Uh, when they want to um, land in a particular airport. Uh, so the arrival procedure will have the waypoints that they track to, and they'll also have the altitudes and the speeds uh, as well that the air traffic controllers would like the plane to uh, descend at and, and follow. Uh, if you have a look at uh, the BIDMO-1 Alpha arrival, I've got the waypoints here on my website if anyone wants to have a look at it. Um, we'll, we'll, share, we'll share your uh, website and, and links um, uh, in the wherever people see this podcast and videocast so um, okay. they'll be able to access them. Yeah. All right. The, we've, we've got arrival points on that arrival called Bidmo, Pukar and Endor. If you have a look at the track, it tracks quite closely to Bidmo and then Pukar and it actually tracks directly over one of the points called Endor. And when I say directly over, I mean directly it over. Directly, uh, it is absolutely directly over. That's right. And then from Endor, it goes to a point south of Penang, about seven miles from the, the runway south of Penang. Now, if you were to map that and cr cross-reference that with the uh, standard arrival procedure, as well as the uh, instrument approach, the ILS instrument approach landing chart for Penang, mm -hmm. for runway 04 for the ILS, then there is actually a point on that chart where you can do what we call a course reversal procedure to allow the plane to um, intercept the ILS, intercept the, the uh, course Essentially turn the, around and try and intercept the, uh, the ILS beam. That's right, yeah. And that point is a point seven miles south of the, the runway. Mm -hmm. And MH370 flew exactly, exactly over that particular point. Now, if you have a look at the, the ILS chart, when you, you fly over that point, you are then required to fly on a track of 267 degrees. And that will allow you to make uh, a 180 degree turn to intercept the, the final course for the ILS for runway 04. Now, looking at the tracking from the primary radar, after it passed that point, seven degrees uh, south of the, the runway, it actually did turn and track to six, seven degrees. So it was pretty much exactly as per the instrument approach chart for the ILS for runway 04. 
Now, so we have three um, uh, indi indications there that the aircraft was following the BIDMO-1 arrival and the, the ILS. Now, if you know, if if you say that all that was a coincidence, then it's, okay. it's a lot of coincidences. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and we're, we're talking about uh, almost perfect tracks at, at what you would expect an aircraft yeah. to fly if it was trying to to land at Penang. Now, the problem, of course, was that um, all indications are that the the aircraft was still at a high altitude because the speed was quite high, and to 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 get the speeds. Um, that we see on the primary radar, then the aircraft would still have to be at uh, quite a reasonably high altitude. Um, and you know, there they, they could be reasons for that. Yeah, because yeah, again, I'll ask the obvious question, and I'm sure people mm -hmm. are in their heads, you know, yeah. asking, okay, so if they're not all coincidences, and yes, there was some intention to try and land there, then uh -huh. the question then is why did the aircraft remain at such uh -huh. a height? And and th there's some suggestions from that track and the 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 primary uh, surveillance radar that um, this aircraft may at times have been pushed to its absolute height ceiling, altitude ceiling, and, and I think that's uh -huh. something in the region of 43,000 feet, which is right at the operational yeah. safe manual. Yeah, um, could be a number of reasons. And um, if you if if you have ever uh, done any flying in, in a simulator, for example, um, and you, you you know you 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 um, practice uh, emergency uh, scenarios in in the simulator, you know, you know that you're going to be very busy in in the simulator, mm -hmm. trying to do everything. Uh, if this was a, an emergency, they tried to get back to Penang as quick as they could, and there may have been lots of things happening in the cockpit at the at the time, and plus the fact that um, you know you, you're flying the plane manually. Um, now, who, it's very very hard, I guess, for for us to uh, to try and envisage uh, what may have happened at that particular point. But you're you're, you're busy, um, you're flying, you're hand flying the plane. Um, you might have thought that the, the plane would respond normally to what you expected to, to do. Um, for example, you know, if you wanted to make a descent, uh, you know, you'll set the mm -hmm. altitude selector uh, to a lower altitude. Uh, you might think that the autopilot may still function, and then you go ahead and, and try and, and do something that you've been used to mm -hmm. uh, doing in the past, and it doesn't respond, and then yet there might be some other distraction that's happening. Then, if you thought that the plane was con was uh, was descending when it wasn't, but there were other things going on in the cockpit, then that plane might have just kept on at its particular altitude and not have done anything. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, no, it, it makes sense. I, I suppose my my follow up question, and again, it's another question mm. that I have to ask, as uncomfortable as some questions can be. Yeah. As as a a flight instructor, mm. um, when you look at that track, does that track strike you as a track flown by somebody who has little or no experience of flying an aircraft? Uh, absolutely not. No, that okay. that shows a lot of experience. Um, okay. I mean, if you were to track to a particular point and, and to manually fly in that point and to get to that point, with, um, I'm talking about that point indoor, by the way, uh, then that would take a lot of skill to do, uh, to fly a plane, uh, hand fly a plane. 
especially at, at altitude, because if you're hand flying a plane at, at high altitude, then the air being less dense is not as easy as what it is when you're flying at a lower altitude. So that would take a lot of skill to do. What we, um, what we, but what we do know at that point is there was, I suppose, what we would call the second most significant turn of the aircraft. Uh-huh. It then turns northwest, am I right? Yeah, northwest. Yeah. And essentially starts taking a path up through the, I think, the towards the Andaman Sea, the Malacca, what's called the, the Malacca Strait. So just your yeah. thoughts there, where are we, not where are we going, uh-huh. you know, where the, the aircraft went generally. Um, yeah. but, but your thoughts on, again, what uh-huh. might have might have been happening there so let's let's assume there's some attempt for some reason to try and get the aircraft landed at Penang that hasn't right. happened for whatever reason whether it's incapacitation or whatever's uh-huh. going on in that cockpit but it doesn't happen and now we're we've got another major turn and now we're moving up the Malacca Strait all right um, okay yeah after that turn uh, there was a turn uh, to a heading of about 267 and then from there i think it goes on to a track of about 300 or 310 um, basically on a northwesterly mm-hmm. heading um, once again if you were to look at the finer points and look at the the tracks in detail you'll find that over a period of about 35 nautical miles there was something like 38 different course changes Mm-hmm. as it was heading up the, the Malacca Strait. Now, once again, um, that would indicate that the plane was not on, on automatic pilot because the, that's not the profile that you would expect of an aircraft that's flying on autopilot. Essentially, now, waypoint to waypoint, yeah. Yeah, so those, those uh, track changes, in my opinion, could mean that um, the plane was either being uh, controlled manually by someone flying the plane uh, in an abrupt way with no real idea of um, where they what, were. What their final intention was, yeah. That's right, or where they were going. Uh, it could also mean <coughs> that no one was in control of the plane because uh, if you have a look at the, 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 the tracking, it seemed as if the, the plane was just meandering up the Malacca Strait. Yeah, and I, that I, was the case. But I, I think what I'd like to establish is then that we know that the turn of the Gary, it wasn't just the aircraft just decided of its own accord, to, you know, that that had to be a, a, uh-huh. an intended action. Yeah. We, we, we seem pretty much agreed that the uh, after it passed over uh, Penang out towards the sea and, and the, the, the next turn also appeared to be a specific action uh, to uh-huh. go in that direction. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, that that turn of the the two six seven um, for for me anyway. That that seems to be a, mm-hmm. de- a deliberate turn. But thereafter, if you have a look at the the tracking, then it seems to be like uh, the the plane was meandering. And you know, if you if you follow if you go through um, the uh, thought processes of the uh, the ATSB, for example, the ghost flight scenario where there may have been pilot incapacitation, then, in my opinion, that was probably where it started to happen, the pilot incapacitation started to happen, where after the turn to 267 and then mm-hmm. further to 300 or 310, um, then to have something like 
38 course changes within 35 nautical miles is, is um, yeah, it's not uh, an, an aircraft that was under control. Okay, let, so let, it, let's, let's, I suppose, move on to the, the next logical uh, step. There's, there's essentially, where we believe the, the aircraft is now, there's essentially one final last turn of significance. Right, uh, that, 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 this, I think this is where we're, we're off the coast of, uh, is it Sumatra? Or am I in yeah. Indonesia? Yeah, we're, we're sort of, uh, we're well up uh, north there. So, mm-hmm. again, your, your, your thoughts, uh, how, you know, it's, it's going essentially in the 267 heading, and all yeah. of a sudden, it's no longer doing that, and now it's, mm-hmm. if we're looking at that, that, that process of significant incapacitation, how do we get to that last final turn south into the South Indian Ocean? Okay, well, you know, um, who, who's to say that there, there, there weren't more minor minor turns uh, mm-hmm. before that that major turn? Yeah, uh, there could have been many small um, changes of direction leading to a, a, a turn to the south or. Um, you know, a, a correction to the to the south. Um, I, as I understand it, Mick, um, the reason why we think that the plane was heading in the southerly direction is through the BFO data that the Imersat. The, that's the burst uh, timing offset, yeah, in the in the Imersat data that's embedded in that data. Yeah, and um, the BFO. Uh, I think it was at the, the time, 1840, I think that, that was. The BFO data at 1840 indicated that a turn to the south may have happened uh, on the assumption that the aircraft maintained a constant altitude. Now, if you, the, the autopilot was disconnected and the plane is not under any control, mm-hmm. then it's unlikely that the plane could have maintained a constant altitude. Mm-hmm. Now, if that's the case, then that, that argument of the, the, the BFO data suggesting that the plane turned to the south then becomes uh, questionable. Now, I've, I've been uh, talking to one or two people about this, and a pers- another person suggested that the, for the BFO data uh, to read what it what was reading at that particular time, there could be two interpretations. One could be a turn to the south, or the other interpretation could be that the plane continued on that particular heading or that particular course, but descended at a rate of around about 2,500 feet per minute. Now, that's interesting because if that was the case, then that would put the plane in the area where there was a sighting made by... uh, a person that was on a yacht in in the Andaman Sea around that that region. That's right. At, yeah. about, about the time where you would expect MH370 to be. So that's another thing that uh, I think uh, could be uh, investigated further. Okay, let's on that that part of the analysis. Let's just park that first. We're going to come back to it, but but let's just right. we're, we're we're at the the sailor in the. Um, the sea who spots uh, uh, potentially uh, an aircraft behaving oddly and, and turning sort of, I think initially was going slightly west and then went completely south. Um, yeah. I just want to move, we've been told by the um, 
the new minister Anthony Lowe, uh, Loke, uh, the the transport minister in Malaysia, that we are now going to have a final report, and uh, just very quickly for people who, who what's a final uh, essentially. Uh, uh-huh. And this is like no uh, aircraft investigation. I think any of us in our lifetimes have ever experienced. But but just generally, uh, when uh, an aircraft investigation reaches its concluding points, essentially all the information is gathered. And normally uh, we have wreckage, the aircraft recovered, examined, uh, all the scenarios are gone through, and you know the the Eureka point this is what we think happened this is what uh, we looked at the, uh, the the voice recorder the flight data recorder but uh, and essentially at the end of an, uh, an investigation the um annex 13 safety team which is kind of like the investigation what the investigation team is called produce uh-huh. this uh final report however we're in we're in strange times because we essentially have the promise of a final report in July, I believe, or potentially before July or sometime in July. But we don't have an aircraft. That's right, yeah. I think that's well premature to have a final report. Yeah, before, it's, um, you know, it's generally what happens if an investigator, and, and it can, we've saw it with, with a TWA 800, we've seen it with oh. other aircraft, and that, that, that the nature of them are that they're not just done, you know, in a few weeks or a few months, uh, even when, you know, an aircraft is recovered or, or whatever the, 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 the site of the aircraft is. Uh-huh. Um, it, 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 these things, even in a short investigation, often will take a year to two years uh, fully. And, and investigations have been known to go for 10, 10 years, 12 years. Yeah. Uh, obviously, the next of kin, the families, are not too pleased about the fact that we have a final report because final means final to them. That yeah. somehow uh-huh. the shop doors are being shut and the, the, the shutters pulled down and that's it uh, uh, there, there's nothing more we can do here yeah I, I think it's uh, way too uh, early to have a final report because we, we don't know what happened to the plane and I, I think you can make any conclusion at this stage mm-hmm. as to what have, have, has happened to MH370 um, I would you know I would suggest um, to the, the minister that we hold off uh, uh, coming up with the final report until we know a little bit more about what may have happened uh, to MH370. Um, and, you know, I, I encourage um, the families, the next of kin, to approach the minister and, and ask him to you know, stop uh, with the pr- um, production of the, the final report because we simply don't know enough about what ha- has happened. Uh, when I look at a, an air accident final report and I go through it, and I, I'd like to try and learn something from the particular accident. Um, now, we don't know enough about what has happened, so I don't think anyone can come to any conclusion and can 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 learn from from this at at, at this stage of the uh, in the investigation anyway. Yeah, I'm 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 my own thoughts on that are I, I, I'm not sure what additional things we're, we're going to get in the final report that that's somehow going to you know suggest that okay well maybe this was appropriate or um uh-huh. what w- well it's it's i, I mean I, I think you've answered the question really we're uh-huh. both not expecting too much more in this final report because it's kind of like well what what extra is there uh we know uh-huh. there was a there's a there's a dual criminal investigation uh, we haven't formally seen details of that 
report other than basic summaries uh, that were included in a, an early uh, interim report um, but essentially yeah. we have enough although we, we do have access to that 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 uh, criminal report but it's not never been officially released right yeah there are, there are certainly I, I think we can agree there are certainly things we'd like to see in the final report whenever whenever it happens and we, uh-huh. we we i think we're both agree it's way too early there should be a top to bottom complete review of this over the next six months and then consideration given to either do we search again or okay next march we need to release a final report but that's when every stone is not is 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 turned over and checked um we know there are things that we'd like to see uh, in a final report um talk to us maybe about some some of those things you'd like to see that, that well, we haven't already seen that might exist but we haven't seen and um, we've over recent weeks the pair of us um, privately have been looking at for example the flight manifest yeah that's right um, there's, there's a bit of um, a bit of a mystery there in, in terms of uh, what's actually on the, the manifest um, I think um, we, we were looking at uh, the lithium batteries, for example, that was uh, carried on on board. Yeah, this is a consignment. Of, I think it was a, a Motorola uh, consignment of of what was marked down initially as as uh, lithium ion mm-hmm. batteries, and, and then chargers uh, w- was also listed. And we yeah, don't know a great deal about that consignment. We we've kind of just got the bare front bones of the. Uh, the airway manifest bill but we don't have the backup information that we seem to have with the other consignments that were on board that aircraft that's right yeah that, that's a bit of a mystery as to why that w- part of the information was uh, not included uh, the the other consignments had detailed information about what was carried uh, but, but the lithium batteries didn't um, and that is a little bit uh, suspicious to me. I mean, you know, why would they leave that out? And as we saw from the um, official government website, where they list all of the items that were were carried on the manifest, the cargo manifest, um, the lithium batteries uh, had something like 26 pages, I think it was, that mm-hmm. that should have been there that weren't there, and that is something that um, needs to be addressed. Um, so yeah, um, why why was that left out? Is, is there something there that they don't want us to see? Uh, that's something that we we need to ask, and that's uh, hopefully that's something that will come out in in the final report as well. And I, I think for me as well, one of the other areas that when I first came out, I came across these reports not actually that long ago, and I honestly wasn't aware of them. And I, I, th- I thought I'd been down every rabbit hole in this, but uh, I, I was amazed to, to uh, when somebody sent me these documents. These are documents um, around a sort of a, a committee meeting of uh, ICAO. This is the uh, international aviation uh, body that sort of regulates and controls uh, airlines uh, throughout the world and sets down principles as to how investigations need to work uh, and what's what's required and responsibility and and so forth. I hadn't been aware that there was a meeting in January 2015 and there were some conclusions made. I'm not going to go into full details of them, but broadly I will simply say that the conclusions of ICAO back in January 2015 were pretty scathing of the initial 
part of the investigation, particularly the whole SAR operation. In fact, so much so that they immediately wanted um, improvements in the Asian region as to how uh, events like this, uh, specifically if an aircraft goes missing and how it's actually dealt with because they were none too impressed with the manner that this was dealt with in the initial stages. Right, yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, so I'd certainly like to see the uh, conclusions of the, 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 the Annex 13 safety team onto, uh, as perhaps now, what is it that they've fixed or addressed mm -hmm. uh, 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 about those conclusions? Yeah, I was a bit worried, uh, not, I was a bit... Amazed as to the initial reactions of uh, what happened when they discovered that MH370 didn't check on with uh, Ho Chi Minh City ATC, because what should have happened after that was that uh, within five minutes of not checking on, they should have started uh, um, the, the first phase in the um, uh, trying to locate the aircraft, and that that wasn't undertaken. Um, so there's. Uh, uh, some improvements that need to be done in, in that respect. Um, um, I think it wasn't until something like five hours later. I that think it was they, early it, five, 5.30 in the morning before formally mm -hmm. somebody declared That's right. th that, yes, we, we are now in SAR operation, search and recover. Yeah, that's right. That, that, that was quite uh, disappointing that it took so long for, for that to, to happen. And, and really, in, in those circumstances, you set yourself so much on the back foot in a search because you know we all say an aircraft can actually get quite a distance in 15 and we, we, we often talk about regulations and how often should uh, aircraft be tracked and report in their exact positioning but even in 15 minutes you know an aircraft can go a hell of a long way let alone four hours that's right yeah uh-huh so yeah um there's, I don't know whether it's misunderstanding on uh, the air traffic controllers uh, side because uh, where, where MH370 went uh, missing was at a point where it was being transferred across from uh, one flight information region to the other. Yeah, and I from think Kuala Lumpur to, to Vietnam Airs to Ho Chi Minh. Yeah, and whether one thought that the other had initiated the, the search and rescue uh, processes or whether the, the, the other one uh, the other FIR had initiated it or not, um, but then again, I mean that, that's something that should have been cleared up very early on. It shouldn't have taken five hours to to do something like that. And, and we we also during that those hours we also had all sorts of misinformation communicated back and forth. Uh, I think at one stage, uh, the uh, Malaysia Airlines operational base was contacted, and mm -hmm. somebody not deliberately obviously inadvertently gave information that was perceived that the aircraft was actually flying in somewhere in cambodia and uh, it was uh, all things were fine until uh, the aircraft communicated back and you know that that sent everybody off in one direction uh, uh, trying to find out was that information correct and then finding out that no actually sorry somebody made a mistake that was the projected tracker or that wasn't actually where it is we don't know where yeah. it is yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I mean, I can understand that there being um, miscommunication uh, in that respect. Um, uh, but um, you know, flight dispatchers, for example, should should know where their aircraft is at any point in time. Mm -hmm. 
um, and you know if they can't locate where their aircraft is, then yeah, that's a real big problem in, in the whole operational side of things. Um, let's um, let's we, we touched on. Let's go back to our sailor in the uh, the ocean spotting um, potentially uh-huh. what she she doesn't know um um whether then she believed it was an aircraft she, obviously she couldn't uh, identify what aircraft it is but it does seem to suggest indicators of what we now know that there's a there's a strong likelihood that it could possibly have been but just in a wider area as we we, we move to start maybe talking about the debris but just before then to talk about eyewitnesses we've we've an awful lot of eyewitnesses and I'm not suggesting in any way that the uh, Australian Transport Safety Board, the ATSB and and the investigation team in uh, Malaysia haven't looked at these these eyewitness reports because I I always have to remind people on groups, look, whether you like it or not, technical and criminal investigations work on a need-to-know basis. If you don't need to know, you don't get told. So we don't know to what extent the Australians and the Malaysians looked at all these eyewitness reports. And as as I say to people as well, we've got so many eyewitness uh, reports all over the place. They can't all be right. Not everybody could see it. And sometimes I think people look at them and say, and then start trying to string them all. I've even seen people come up with crazy theories to somehow right. talk about some sighting in Sumatra, some sighting in the uh, Malacca Strait, some sighting off Australia, and somehow try to link in a crazy way all these sightings up that are bonkers, yeah. like with the timings are just completely off. But just uh-huh. t- talk to me a little bit about uh, the eyewitness uh, reports we have, and, and maybe specifically from that point that we were talking about with the, uh, the, uh, the the lady sailor okay yeah I think um, the, the sighting from the uh, uh, just north of Sumatra by the, the yeah. uh, lady the, the sailor that uh, fits uh, pretty well with the, the timing of where you would expect MH370 to be once it had left um, the Malacca Strait um, I think initially uh, we all assumed that the the aircraft was at 35,000 feet or thereabouts, mm-hmm. and if that was the case, then that would make it very difficult for the sighting of the sailor to be uh, re- reconciled. Because um, I think she was saying that uh, she could see the the, the lights of the, the cockpit being brightly lit. Yeah, and she. I, she I, I don't think in any way. Look, we, we've all. I, I don't live far from an airport. Um, I've been covering aviation for years. Uh, when a plane flies out of Sheeple Airport, I, I can generally estimate roughly within a thousand feet or two, you know, what level flight level uh, it's it's on. Uh, and I know I know the difference between an aircraft that's at five thousand feet, ten thousand feet, and thirty-five, forty thousand feet. And there's a hell of a difference in what you can see and what you can't see. And then we we've other sorts of things that you've got to factor in uh, conditions um you know you're at sea you're in uh, a boat that's mo- that's moving itself uh, yeah. you know you're looking across uh, the sea you're at horizon lines line of sights everything like that and of course night daytime everything's got to be factored in Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, if, if the plane was at 35,000 feet, then I would have thought that, oh, okay, um, that might have been something else that, that sailors saw. Um, but 
when you look back at uh, the analysis that I just had, mm -hmm. I just did with uh, the aircraft leaving Penang, and the possibility that the aircraft wasn't on automatic pilot, and the fact that you know when you're not on automatic pilot, it's unlikely that the plane will be continu continuously at uh, a particular flight level. Uh, it could have been on a, on a, on a descent. Uh, there was enough time from when it left Penang at about, what, 30, 35, 36,000 feet for it to do a descent at 2,500 feet per minute and be at an altitude that could have been observed by the sailor in, in the northern part of Sumatra. And if you have a look at the times, uh, the timing, uh, the timing could also fit in with the the, the sighting at that particular location as well. Uh, so for me, of all of the the observations, all of the the possible sightings, then that one would um, be one that I would have a lot of uh, confidence in um, believing. We, I, I'm, uh, not, I'm not going to mention his name because the, the man has has been through the mill <laughs> and, and, and he, literally. Yeah. Uh, 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 you know, uh, I'm not even going to mention, but he was an oil rig worker uh, right. who also uh -huh. claimed that he uh, he spotted um he spotted the, or he believed that he might have have possibly spotted uh, the aircraft on the night. That, that there's some well, there's quite strong question marks that that between line of sight and the distance uh, he was away that that it seems unlikely because this was a time quite close to when. Uh, mm -hmm. The aircraft had turned at at, at Agari, and it seems right. quite a stretch to suggest that uh, he could have seen the the aircraft. And 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 if he did, then we're all wrong. That the, the aircraft <laughs> not only not only did it not turn back over Malaysia, but it must have went in the complete opposite direction uh, east uh, over to to the oil rig. Um, That's right. Yeah. We've we've also had, and I, the, the one thing I've I've promised myself this year and. Uh, people from groups will, will MH370 groups will, will probably be familiar with me, but the one thing I promised myself this year that I try and be as open-minded as possible. But oh. you know, even I, I, there's only so far I can go, uh, and I, I will not go to the ridiculous. However, yeah. oh. we have, I think it's up to 19 people, um, oh. in the Maldive Islands. Uh -huh. That claim yeah. on the morning. Now, when we say morning, we're sort of talking. I think I think it was maybe sometime around six, six thirty a.m. Yeah. Uh, claimed that they saw an unusual, large, low flying, um, what they refer to as a jumbo jet. Right. Uh, yeah. what, what, look, I, I, I'll ask the question. What are your thoughts? Um, uh -huh. And is it is there any scenario feasible that the aircraft after Penang could simply have continued going west towards yeah. the Maldive Islands. I think you've sent me a uh, fuel analysis, and I think I think uh -huh. correct me if I'm wrong. I think back then you said there is a model that might just about work to get it there, but she wasn't going pretty much anywhere else after that. That's right. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. The, the thing though with uh, the Maldives sighting is that uh, if it did go there, then um, the Inmarsat data has to be incorrect because obviously the Inmarsat data is having the the aircraft track in a completely different direction. Yeah. Uh, and for a particular time that the uh, um, the the aircraft in the um, in the Maldives would not have uh, had enough. Uh, uh, 
uh, sorry, I'll, I'll say that again. Um, if you believe in the Inmesat data, the plane would have crashed at about uh, 0019, I think, UTC. Uh, now, according to my fuel analysis, and we're, we're an hour out, aren't we? Really, with that's the, right. Uh, not not only the not only in the fuel analysis, but we're an hour out with the witness times, or, or thereabouts, between 45 minutes and 60 minutes. We're, that, we're out. Uh, that essentially what we're right. saying is the only feasible model that could fuel model that could get the aircraft over the Maldives at the time was when it was virtually close to fuel exhaustion but the problem is it was a, a roughly an hour before any of these witnesses claimed to have seen a low-flying aircraft uh, that's right yeah um, well a 6 615 Maldives yeah, yeah. time is about yeah I think there's a three-hour time difference between Maldives and, and Malaysia um, and by that time if you were to look at the Inmasat data the plane would have uh, ran out of fuel um, but I did a fuel analysis uh, based on uh, a power setting um, that was at the the, the holding the holding yeah. um, configuration for the aircraft. And if you have a look at the fuel analysis based on on that assumption, then the aircraft could have uh, continued on and flown until I think it was like 6:25 or something like that Maldives time. Now, if they said that they saw something at about 6.15, then you know, the aircraft then could have gone on for another 10 minutes after their sighting. Um, so if um, you discounted the Inmasat data and based on the fuel analysis that I did with the aircraft at that particular flight configuration of the, the aircraft being uh, using the... Um, a configuration that allowed it to hold, um, then the aircraft could have flown up until about 625, mm -hmm. I think it was, Maldives time. Uh, so that, that, that sort of like fits in with the, the, mm -hmm. the time that the sightings were, were made um, with, you know, 10 minutes after and then there the, would have been a, a completely uh, fuel exhaustion after that. Uh, but once again, yeah, that, that doesn't reconcile within Masa data. So I think the words of, and I will talk about shortly about uh, Blaine mm. Alan Gibson, uh, because I want, I want to talk uh, a little bit about the debris and the significance right. of the debris. Um, mm. I, th I think Blaine summed it up as, as perfectly, I think, and simply as anybody. Um, with no disrespect to Immersat, no disrespect to the fishermen in the Maldives who oh. and, and other people who claim what they saw. You cannot accept both. There is That's no right. one does not correlate with the other. You can either you and his words, you accept the eyes of the fishermen in the Maldives and you reject you must reject the Immersat data. But if you believe uh -huh. the Immersat data, then you have to accept that what was seen in the Maldives and nobody dismisses that they didn't see some aircraft what aircraft it is we don't know and uh -huh. the point i've made to people is we've got all these eyewitness reports ultimately the annex 13 team are about mh370 finding it analyzing it and finding out what on earth happened and how did this happen and how to prevent it they uh -huh. are not there to explain what someone thousands of miles away saw in the air that it's 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 not for the Malaysian government or the Australian government to explain what aircraft the Maldives 
uh, fishermen. So that's up yeah. to the Maldive authorities to investigate that if they feel it necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, one, one other thing about the Imasad dynamic. I mean, I have a lot of respect mm. for you know the people at Imasad and uh, all the other people that's done the amazing analysis that they they've done to come up with the um the. The, the search areas in the southern Indian Ocean. I think that's a remarkable uh, uh, feat that they have done. Uh, no disrespect to them. Um, you know, they, they are experts in the field. Um, but the Imasat data, of course, was based on the Air France uh, 447 uh, analysis in that, um, or the idea to use the Imasat yeah, yeah. data was, was based on that. Now, there are some differences between Air France 447 and MH370, of course, because Air France 447, you had an aircraft that was in perfectly good condition that uh, experienced a stall. Um, and as far as I know, that um, ACAR's information from Air France 447 was continuously being uh, transmitted right until the, 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 the plane crash. Uh, and th this was in its fullest um, form, in, in the sense that you know there, there was nothing wrong with the aircraft. Um, the ACAR's messages that they were getting were in in, in its uh, correct form. But in Malaysian 370, after the the reboot, uh, the ACAR's messages were not exactly the same as as what they were getting prior to when ACAR stopped sending messages. So that would suggest to me that they may, they may have been something mechanical that had ha had happened on the on the aircraft that stopped the ACARS from sending messages. And when it rebooted again, it wasn't in the same format as when um, it was when it when it's uh, was sending ACARS messages mm -hmm. uh, normally. And I think the flight ID, for example, was missing in the, the ACAS messages after it, uh, it, it rebooted. Uh, and that would suggest to me that, you know, there, there might have been some corruption with, with the data uh, because it wasn't, wasn't you know, wasn't the, it wasn't perfect. Uh, if that was the case, if there was corruption in the Inmasat data, then um, can, can we, you know, can we use that data to the extent that um, Air France 447 used the, the data to locate the aircraft? Yuanda, um, we've got about another uh, on my. Uh, I'm just looking at the time here. We've got about another ten more minutes. Um, in right. that time, I just want to reflect first of all on the just quickly on the the debris. Is there anything that the debris tells us? We we know we've got uh -huh. internal debris and external debris. We've got uh -huh. something like thirty plus pieces. I want to stress when no one is saying every one of those pieces is connected to uh, an aircraft let alone mh370 but we have made some positive identifications but just generally on on the debris we found and, and tremendous work done by blaine allen gibson uh, across the uh, east african uh, coast right down to south africa and other people as well other normal civilians who who've, uh, came forward with, with what they believe is debris yeah mm -hmm. um yeah i think um the debris location where it was found indicated that the, the aircraft did go down in the uh, Indian Ocean, uh, southern Indian, Indian Ocean. And um, I think some of the pieces, um, the internal pieces, for example, I think there was a, a fairing from 
the one of the wall panels inside MH370 that that matches all of the pattern match identically to uh, how um, the the furnishings were uh, were done in, in in the Malaysian airline. Yeah, aircraft. yeah. This is this what they sort of call it. It's like a foil pattern on the internal pa panels, which were specific to uh, Malaysia mm -hmm. Air Airlines Triple uh, Seven uh, aircraft. Yeah, and and also I think the video screen was was identical to the type that we, you you find in the Malaysian aircraft as well. Um, so if you were able to find internal pieces of the aircraft, then that would suggest that there was a high energy impact when the aircraft went down. Mm -hmm. And if that was the case, then most likely then um, yeah, the, the the aircraft was was not controlled at the time that the aircraft was um, was hitting the water. Um, and also the size of the debris as well. The, the small pieces of debris would suggest that uh, there was a high energy impact. Yeah, it's as well. it's it's quite small. I think the the largest two pieces that have been found and connected uh, are, are the the flapper on and the the part of the outboard um, flap as well. Uh, I think that was found in Tanzania. Yeah, that's right. And they're the two um, largest pieces. Yeah. And if you were to compare that with uh, an, another case where um, an, an aircraft did go down from high altitude, and I'm talking about the, the Silk Air MI-185 uh, crash in Indonesia, in Palembang, Indonesia. Um, now, that, that was um, a, uh, a crash from 35,000 feet. And some large parts were actually found from the aircraft as well. And the investigators concluded that those large pieces, I think that came from the tail section of the aircraft, actually came apart as the aircraft uh, dis mm -hmm. descended. And that might explain why you know you can you can get large pieces like the flapper on and parts of the flap uh, being found, as well as the smaller pieces uh, of debris that were found caused to high energy impact. Um, so may may have you know th those large pieces may have come apart as the aircraft was was uh, was descending. That, 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 that's certainly been, I think, a, a strong theory that the, oh. uh, I think even recently, uh, the, 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 the Peter Dolan, is it? Yeah, I think Peter Dolan of the ATSB oh. in the Australian Senate Committee uh, touched oh. upon as well that that this was also oh. something they consider that it is, it, it you know, it, we should not make an assumption that those parts came on the, uh, the flap round specifically on, on the flap that they came off on impact that there is some line of thought that some of the other smaller parts also suggest rivet popping and that and that that could also be signs that the aircraft was way way outside its operating envelope uh, on descent yeah mm -hmm. that's right yeah um you and just as we as we move towards a, a conclusion um, just your general thoughts. Um, uh, uh, specifically, I, I, you know, we're, we're both in in aviation groups. We're in specific MH370 groups. Uh, your whole Broadway, the media has dealt with this, and and then if we could maybe just move to then your final thoughts of on on, on this investigation. Uh, yeah, I, there's you know been lots of d different theories um, out there. Um, some of them are, are, are way out there in, in that uh, they're just uh, hard to believe. Hmm. Um, I, I, I do get involved in some of these groups, and um, you know I'd, I'd, I'd like to keep an open mind as to 
what may have happened to MH370. Um, but like you, you know, the, you can only go to so yeah, far. Yeah, you can. To, they're, they're, they're <laughs> the sublime and there's the absolute ridiculous. And yeah, that's right. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to consider any any suggestions and uh, try and reconcile that with uh, what what we know, the, mm. the known facts, for example. But, but what we th yeah, there, there, there's some basic things that that, that really uh -huh. it, it it must be somehow plausible. Uh, and, uh -huh. and too often I see. When people want to put a theory and good luck to me we want to put theories together i've always oh. said i don't really have any personal theory myself the bottom yeah. line is i was not on that aircraft i wasn't flying it i wasn't uh -huh. there so i can't and i'm not i'm no satellite expert i have a general knowledge in multiple areas but i'm no satellite expert i'm not a debris uh, analyst and yeah. you know so i i can only approach this from a journalistic mind and uh -huh. pieces have to fit together you know you, you can't just pick and choose throw well I don't understand the Immersat data so I'll just forget that bit and yeah well you know I just all I'm interested in is what the eyewitnesses said or all I'm interested in is just the debris uh, right. it doesn't work that way we've got to be able to fit this together yeah, that's right. And uh, I think what had came out recently um, in the 60 Minutes um, uh, media about that was um, very one-sided. I mean, that's the, yeah, my, my was, opinion. Yeah, it was a appalling program put together. It, essentially, it, mm -hmm. it was like a uh, a vanity project for somebody uh, who, who just <laughs> launched their, their book. You know, ironically, it that's came right. out days later, so we won't even mention the man's name. But <laughs> Well, I'm glad you mentioned it because yeah. I didn't want to <laughs> But that's what it seems like, yeah. Uh, um, my your, perspective is... is yeah, that, your, yeah, your I'm, final thoughts. Yeah, um, I've, I've always thought that it was a, a, mecha a mechanical problem that they experienced and you know they tried to get the plane down on the ground as quick as they could um, that was my first thoughts and th there was a recent incident Mick um, that I think you are aware of yeah. um, I think in the last three weeks or so where um, I think it was an A320 in China that had a cra cracked windscreen and uh, the the wind the windscreen cracked to the extent that the um, the first oh, the, the, was the, the, sucked out. And yeah, was this the one where the literally the whole um, flight management box literally mm -hmm. was also blasted out of place? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, 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 like extraordinary catastrophic damage um, mm -hmm. uh, was caused. Yeah. That, that we, and you don't understand how that can disable the systems on mm -hmm. a plane. That's right, and uh, to, even to the extent that the the pilots weren't able to communicate because of the um, the, the the wind that was happening inside the cockpit, mm -hmm. the, and also the the freezing conditions uh, experienced at that time. Uh, so they weren't able to communicate uh, to ATC what had happened, and they just con conducted an emergency descent, which was successful. Um, so. I, I I tend to think along those lines that that might have had uh, a similar occurrence to MH370, and uh, no, they they weren't able to communicate you know, because of the fact that you know they might have been in in a situation where communication wasn't possible. Mm -hmm. um, and and as, as we always say, um, nobody is suggesting that there could not have been nefarious actions of some kind on this aircraft uh -huh. we simply don't have enough 
we ha we can argue there's some circumstantial evidence to get if you want to fit it or interpret it in a certain way but yeah. we have no credible evidence as of yet that mm -hmm. a nefarious act took place that's right yeah absolutely and um, I, I think uh, you know it, it's uh, very um, un, uh, difficult for us to come to any conclusion as to what has happened to MH370 with the limited information that we have at this stage uh, all we can do, I guess, is just to continue to analyze uh, uh, the available data that we have, and from there, then hopefully... And possibly uh, hope that um, the Malaysian government and their Annex 13 team will top to bottom review everything that they have and mm -hmm. make available to, even if it's not made public, if it's made available to experts, independent experts, who can also check, recheck, examine it to see is there something more here that we've missed or we didn't know that can tell us a little bit more but we need to continue searching on absolutely yeah and uh, I, I, you know I'm very um, hopeful that that will continue in the in, in the next summer um, and you know once we, we do find a little bit more of the debris and mm -hmm. uh, that will give us a better idea of uh, what, what may have happened to the aircraft um, then that's, that's when we can start to, to consider um, putting together a final report but I think at this stage it's way, way too premature. Yeah, no, absolutely, I totally agree there. Yuan uh, Ismail, it has been a pleasure uh, talking to you today, thank you for taking the time uh, to join us on Radio Aspoil and You're welcome, uh, Mick. we'll keep searching. You take care, yes. we'll talk soon. Yeah. Okay Mick, nice bye. talking to you. See you later. Bye take bye. care, bye. You too, bye. Okay, that's a wrap for another episode, and I want to uh, thank um, Joanna Ismail for joining us as a guest. That was a fascinating uh, interview. Uh, just a couple of things I just want to correct. Uh, at some stage there, when we were talking to uh, uh, Joanna about um, the Immersat data, uh, Joanna was talking about the uh, burst frequency offset, and I may have inadvertently referred to the burst timing offset, but I just want to emphasize that we were talking about the uh, burst frequency offset. Also, when we talked about the Australian uh, Senate Committee, I mentioned a uh, reference to someone called Peter Dolan, I was confusing him with Martin Dolan. Uh, I, uh, it was uh, Peter Foley uh, who I was talking about at the uh, recent Australian Senate meeting. Uh, thank you for joining us, uh, www.radioaspoil.com, please give us a follow on Twitter, we're, we're there at, uh, at um, Radio Aspoil on Twitter and also um, on Facebook, uh, give us a like there. Um, thank you again to you and take care, we'll see you again soon for episode 11, you never know what guest is coming up next.
You have been listening to Radio Aspile, a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media and presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney. Please feel free to leave a comment and visit our links provided in this podcast production. Thank you for your support.